May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Eamon Duffy, an acclaimed Oxford historian and a Roman Catholic, has declared that in his view, only two good things came out of the English Reformation. One was the translation of the Bible into English, and the other was the service of choral evensong. If you haven't been to the latter, I recommend it. We Anglicans would share his enthusiasm for those two developments, of course, and also recognize a number of other benefits of the Reformation. Many of us, however, at this distance from the 16th century would also join Professor Duffy in finding things to regret about this seismic shift in English religious life. For example, it pains me to think of the government-ordered destruction in all English churches of the images on the so-called rude screens. The term rude, R-double-O-D, derives from an Anglo-Saxon word meaning cross. The rude is the cross. The rude screen featured a raised wooden beam between the nave where the congregation sits and the chancel where the choir sits, just across from this pillar to that pillar. And on top of this beam, in the middle, was a rood or cross with an image of Jesus on it. Normally, to the left of the rood was an image of his mother, Mary, and to the right was an image of St. John, the apostle and evangelist. These images depict a biblical scene recorded in John's Gospel, in which the Lord's mother and his friend, called the beloved disciple, have stayed with Jesus all the way to the crucifixion, unlike most of his so-called followers who had fled in shock and in fear for their lives. It's a beautiful scene. Scripture tells us that the dying Jesus commended his mother to the care of the beloved disciple, saying to her, Woman, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. Happily, by the way, images of this biblical scene were once again placed on many rood screens in Anglican churches from the 19th century onward. We have a reflection of this scene here at Trinity Cathedral on the Reredos behind the high altar with a statue of Mary to the left of the cross and image of Jesus and a statue of John, the beloved disciple, to the right. Among other things, these images highlight the Lord's words in today's gospel, that where he is, there will his servant be also. Mary and John exemplify the faithfulness of those who stick with him through thick and thin, come what may and cost what it will, knowing that he is, as our epistle tells us today, the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Sadly, though, it may be hard to identify with such model disciples. It may be hard to see ourselves in the scene. None of us has always remained faithfully where Jesus is. Time and again, 
we have turned our backs on him, sometimes wandering far from his side. Last Sunday, Dr. Keller very helpfully discussed how we are diminished in various ways when our choices run counter to the purposes of God, the purposes God is trying to accomplish in our lives and in the world around us. When, often out of fear, we play for the other team, as the dean vividly puts, put it, we perversely turn away from what is good for us. None of us, not, not John and, or even Mary, I would say, gets it right 100% of the time in this earthly life, following Jesus and being where he is to serve him without wavering. This is the human predicament. St. Paul hit the nail on the head when he wrote that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This echoes Isaiah's words famously set to music by Handel, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. As we said in our prayer of confession this morning, we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. Because of this propensity to sin, to wandering, to turning our backs on Jesus, we may feel we don't have a place here with him, and even that there's no hope for us. Look at ourselves and the world. In so many ways, we are a mess, so far from what God intends. But this is where the good news of the gospel comes in, in all its sweetness and glory. We don't earn a place in the Lord's family and at his table. It's a free gift. Christ has earned that place for us. Finally, in Jesus, the divine Son of God, a human being remained absolutely faithful to the end. He lived in perfect righteousness, meaning in right relations with God and others. This was not easy for him, despite his sharing in the Father's nature, for he was human as well. Many episodes of our Lord's life, culminating in the cross, attest to how hard it was. But looking back from the point of his death, we see the only instance of a human life completely in sync with the divine will and purpose. Finally, in Christ, one of God's people fulfilled the covenant described in today's reading from Jeremiah in which humanity walked so closely with God that they obeyed God's law, the law of love, with all their hearts. On the cross, Jesus completed the perfect offering that up to that point no one had been able to make. And while God mourned his son's suffering and death, God delighted in what Jesus had accomplished. His absolute righteousness, in which he lovingly, savingly allows us to share, opened up new and unprecedented possibilities for humanity. The letter to the Hebrews calls it a new and living way. Resurrection now became possible, first for Jesus and then for those who share his life, who share his life in baptism, in the Holy Communion, 
and in this sacred, if flawed, community we know as the church. Because God enables us to share in the divine life through our union with Christ, we do belong here with him in the company of Mary and John and all the saints. His righteousness is imputed to us. We become righteous by participation in his righteousness. By grace, we are his faithful followers, servants who dwell with him, both in eternity and in the many places where he calls us to serve in this earthly life. There is no need for us to hesitate or feel ourselves unworthy. The 17th century English priest and poet George Herbert beautifully conveyed the wonder of this divine gift in a poem entitled Love. Here's how it goes. And by the way, in that century, when they said meat, they meant food. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest I answered worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. When we come up here to feast at this particular Lord's table, at which we are most welcome guests, there is an interesting reminder that we are worthy to be here, sinners though we are. The floor tiles in the sanctuary, that area beyond the altar rail, include a number of dark tiles in the form of crosses. But one of those tiles is out of place, forming what we might call an irregular cross. This arrangement may or may not have been intentional, but one of our vergers says that this irregularity is there to remind us when we come to the Lord's table that we are loved and accepted, just as we are, that we have a place here. And for the abundance of this love and mercy, we return to God our thanks and praise again and again. <laughs> 